Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. This is a sample of our recent bonus episode. Every couple of weeks or so, our crew of researchers, Amanda and myself, get together for a roundtable discussion. So here's a few minutes for free so you can see what all the fuss is about. I'm going to jump to this episode's segment of Words Matter, the book I'm continuing to read through and pulling gems from. And you know, you're talking about the imaginary ideas that we put on groups of people, which is exactly what we are talking about today in the form of what I'm going to describe by mangling the English language terribly as verbing nouning. So to verb a, a noun is to um, is to turn people into nouns, to noun them. And so this is done sort of instead of using adjectives, instead of describing individual aspects of a person, if you noun them, you turn them into a member of a group, then that brings a lot of baggage with it naturally that shouldn't necessarily be there. So from the book, it says, it suggested that saying, quote, Maria is Mexican brings with it fewer stereotypes and assumptions than saying Maria is a Mexican and also points out that racial and ethnic slurs are nouns rather than adjectives. Nominal labels and categorization tend to suggest clusters of properties that make the category cohere, whereas a description simply ascribes a single property and does not necessarily suggest that any particular other properties might also hold of the individual so described. And the difference, I mean, like, I've never been a, a grammar nerd to any extent, and uh, I'm going to hearken back to something my brother said a month or two ago, or I, I don't remember when, but he just pointed out that grammar is not the rules that our language lives by. Grammar is an attempt to describe the natural way our language works. And I don't know that I could have consciously told you that Maria is Mexican the word Mexican is an adjective and Maria is a Mexican means that Mexican becomes a noun. Like maybe I could have told you that, but that's not what would have popped to mind necessarily. But I still would have had the like very instant sort of visceral understanding of the difference between those two. People have thoughts on that. We talked about this, the instant like example that came up was when Trump said, there's my black like mm. that and no matter what you think that that just has like a, a like it hits you some way like oh what the hell is he saying but you know because you have to assume he has a whole bunch of ideas about what being black means like he is that person is a black not that person is a black person that was the it was very clarifying because a, a word can become a slur only if it has so much weight behind it. Like not if it's just like one aspect of someone, if it's the entirety of their being, then it's a slur. And that, that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I can think as soon as Jay said this, you start thinking of all these examples, right? 
is Jewish versus is a Jew, depending on how you say that, it can definitely come off wrong. Is gay versus is a gay? I mean, like, there's so many examples. Like, and and it, you know, if I quoted that, you know, to you, you know who and what their political beliefs are who said it as well. You know, yeah. And so, the, and the next segment goes on to talk about sort of the nature of grammar and how we actually do this completely naturally without any thought. It explains. Multitudes of ordinary speakers of English exploit the contrast between labeling and describing, or between nouns on the one hand and adjectives and verbal expressions on the other, regularly. They did not wait for people who study language to give them license to do so. A couple of examples. I've smoked cigarettes occasionally, but I'm not a smoker. Yes, I drink the occasional beer, but I'm not a drinker. Like you can understand the meaning in those so clearly because they are contrasting adjectives and nouns. And you can understand why a person would do that because they don't want a bunch of baggage to be put on them by having them turned into a noun rather than simply described, which is sort of at the core of this whole discussion over language use and labeling. And I'm just going to jump ahead to the next section, which is about essentialization, which just came up on the main show. I had a whole conversation about essentialization, which is sort of one of the words we use to describe this phenomenon. And the book continues, philosopher of language Kate Ritchie has recently proposed incorporating into formal semantic theories the distinction between these forms in showing why it is important to do so. A study was done that found that children told a story about a girl labeled a carrot eater, were far more likely to essentialize her carrot eating compared to those told that she eats carrots whenever she can. Those who heard the nominal label were significantly more likely than those who got the description to infer that she would continue eating carrots into adulthood and assume that she had always eaten carrots and that this was like a core part of her personality is what the book describes which I thought was really interesting to, to strip away all the you know politicized terms or anything like that and just talk to kids about it as they are learning language, you know, in the relatively early years of learning language, they already understand at a deeply instinctual level the difference between adjectives and nouns. And they probably know the difference between a cat person and someone who likes cats. <laughs> Probably, probably exactly. Yeah. Uh, other nouns. I I made a list here to add on to those you were already saying, Amanda. In, in the book, they refer to killer or murderer as the difference between someone who committed murder, you know, last week versus twenty years ago. And does it really make sense, you know, if they have gone through an evolution or you know repented or whatever? Does it make sense for them to have the the term murderer applied to them? as a noun for their entire lives, for instance, also illegal immigrant, illegitimate child, essentially any slur you can think of, liar versus someone who has lied. Oh, and then of course I wrote down Dion's example, a black person versus a black, <laughs> which is pretty clear. But all of this has led to noun aversion, as this book describes it which is most clearly seen in people-first framing. 
So what it says is, in the 1990s, many organizations began issuing guidelines for bias-free language and endorsed, for example, choosing a person with schizophrenia rather than a schizophrenic or people with learning disabilities rather than the learning disabled. So we see that a lot with um, my job. We just have conversations about it in almost every one of our trainings that we do just for educational purposes, because you do see that people's entire being is deduced down to a diagnosis. So someone experiencing anxiety is not the same as like an anxious person. Usually you see it a lot, especially with bipolar disorder, that someone is bipolar instead of that they're diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And again, that's just very dehumanizing you're chucking their entire being down to that one thing. I would say the same about being gay. I think transgender community, they experience this a lot where it's like, you can't have an identity outside that one. So because you are gay, that's your entire person. And that's how you're going to be described to other people. <laughs> it's always my fear with like my nieces that I'm going to be the gay aunt <laughs> instead of <laughs> just the aunt who happens to be gay. Uh, <laughs> but I definitely have seen a progression in the mental health field. You're starting to see more language changes when you're talking about the houseless community or people experiencing homelessness. I think that's important to clarify because if you're going through something that is that mentally and physically exhausting, draining, and you know, you're trying to get to a better position, and this is more a failure of society than an individual failure, being described as a homeless person that that is who you are, that is your entire makeup. I can't imagine how you find the drive to continue pushing to, you know, try to use services, your abilities to, you know, become housed, right? And the language really does feel like, oh, it's a personal failure over a systemic one. And I think that's my main push with, you know, using different language is that this is what happens when we live in a capitalist society. So if we're going to continue this, we can't act like we're going to blame individuals. It has to be more, you know, recognizing the system. And in that, it's very important for the language that we use. I think people need to be seen. I think people need to be, you know, recognized and, again, not feel. Because when you're in that position, it, I am not saying every single person views it as an individual failure. But a lot of people who are in that position do feel like they failed because that's what you know society projects onto them. So I think being able to see them and use proper language that describes the situation, because what do statistics tell you that when people experience a frame of experiencing homelessness, it's not forever. It is just a time frame. But using that adjective, describing them as that, it makes it seem like a forever condition, that that's always going to be their situation. I don't agree with that. But I'm learning a lot about language too. <laughs> so I think part of that is also, I think language around cisgender people, um, and then including non-binary and transgender, we aren't very sensitive. We don't, we don't use proper language. And it, it's hard enough to get people to use pronouns. But the way they view things is a little distorted. So one of the things that I've been working on is talking about gender assigned at birth versus saying this person was born as, because again, this is a 
we've created as a society a binary that is bullshit and has always been, right? <laughs> so to use proper language to acknowledge that this is a societal thing, that it's just a construct, I think, again, is a very important thing in our language and how we talk about people and how we also see and treat them. Yeah, very long rant, but <laughs> I think that is the area where I know that I need to grow into, especially like just the communities that I'm a part of. That is somewhere that I want to expand my knowledge. But I think it also just creates better conversations in general and makes us more conscientious about other ways that we use language that, again, deduces things down to an individual level instead of looking at the societal failures. I love it as a means of combating white supremacy because part of white supremacy is that the default is white. The default is male. The default is straight. But when you start breaking it down where the default is person, that's the default. That's where you go. And then everything else after that is just a different flavor of person because we're all people fundamentally, not, you know, different than white, straight, male. Like white, straight, male is a flavor of person. That's, that's how I think if, if we start talking in that way, then we start living in that way where everybody is a person. Yeah. And that's, that's an excellent point when <laughs> mostly on the internet, uh, but in general, when straight white males get angry that everyone's calling them straight white males, like we're just doing the same thing that you do to everybody else. <laughs> we're just calling out all of your identifiers because you're not the default. Like, let's change that and make you start to feel like the things that you are are the things that you are and not just the status quo and what, you know, everyone should aspire to. And we should be aware that not being the default anymore is a huge change and will take some time to get used to. Like, that. that the pushback makes sense in a, you know, I appreciate your compassion in this time of, <laughs> of hardship. Yeah, I'm experiencing. Yeah. Well, not, not like it, it's not a hardship, but it is a change, you know, right. and, and it takes a while for people to accept change. And we need to expect that it's going to take a while for people who have been the default to no longer be the default and to be okay with that because billions of people in the world are not the default. and we're fine. So come on, join the rest of us. Um, Jay, specifically. <laughs> that is it for I today's free sample. Time, Paying members are who make this entire show so possible. And so these bonus episodes and the bonus clips that go in our regular episodes are all just to say thanks to them for their support. And we've been in a drought of advertisements on the show for a while now, which means we are all the more grateful for every single member who signs up. If you would like to be our newest member, you can sign up at bestoftheleft.com slash support or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. If you can't afford a membership, I offer financial hardship memberships. Just drop me an email and we'll get you all set up. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for your support. 